The text this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings 14, especially the verses 1 through 20. First Kings 14 then, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Abijah the son of Jeroboam became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there who told me that I would be king over this people. Also, take with you ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will become of the child. And Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh, and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam, coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, For it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you, for you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free, and I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. Arise, therefore, go to your own house, When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day, what even now? For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the, beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel to sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, The child died, and they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed they are written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. 
The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his fathers. Then Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. So far, the word of God. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the lessons you learn over and over and over in the book of Kings is essentially what the words of Ecclesiastes 7 say, the end of a thing is more important than its beginning. Uh, I emphasize that especially when I preached on, on the life of Solomon in my congregation in Alora. the end of a thing is more important than its beginning. How a king finishes his reign matters a lot more than how he begins it. Solomon is a, is a perfect example of that. What ultimately matters is not where you end up, or, or excuse me, not where you begin, but where you end up. The same is true for us, of course. A beautiful wedding ceremony will be tainted with sadness if it ultimately falls apart into brokenness. The same is true of a church. A beautiful opening ceremony to a church doesn't count for much if that church ultimately walks away from the Lord and loses its sight of the gospel. So the end of a thing is more important than its beginning. But that doesn't mean that beginnings don't matter. We, we shouldn't read those words in Ecclesiastes 7 that the end of a thing is more important than its beginning and conclude from that that beginnings don't matter at all because they certainly do. Beginnings have an amazingly determinative function. They, they determine the direction that something is going to go, whether it's an, an individual life or a career or a marriage or a church. That's why we, we take so much care at the beginning of something to, to get everything right. It's why we put so much effort into making the beginning done well. Seeds that are planted at the beginning ultimately become, become something that, that grows up into something that cannot be cut down. And patterns, in the same way, patterns that are established at the beginning ultimately determine the end result, what something is going to look like unless there's some radical intervention. Problems that are introduced at the beginning very often become inescapable patterns later on. So beginnings have a way of determining a direction, a course that something is going to go. And that's exactly what we see in the story of Israel, especially the, the northern ten tribes. Jeroboam is the first king of Israel, and so it's up to him to define what kind of kingdom this is going to be, and if you know anything about the life of Jeroboam, you know that so far, this is not a very good beginning at all. In chapter 14, you might say we come to the end of the beginning, the end of the first king, Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam's last chance to turn around and to set a different course to take, uh, on which to take Israel. And we should recognize as we head into this chapter that chapter 14 only exists because chapter 13 wasn't enough to turn Jeroboam around. I preached on chapter 13 uh, a month and a bit ago, and that's on, on the rebellion of, uh, of Jeroboam against the Lord. And, and it says in chapter 13, verse 33... 
After this event, that's speaking of the prophet's judgment against him, the altar breaking out and the word of God even being proven true as the prophet himself had to die for that word. It says, after this event, Jeroboam still did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of the people for the high places. Whoever he wished, he consecrated him and he became one of the priests of the high places. So chapter 14 only exists here. Jeroboam's last opportunity, one last judgment because chapter 13 didn't turn him around. So he had been publicly humiliated. If you remember, he, he had pointed out the prophet and then he lost control of, of his own arm and his altar was broken out and the ashes poured out from that altar. And still that wasn't enough. And, and so finally, now, God goes after the life of his firstborn son. You, you can't help but think of what God did in Egypt with Pharaoh coming after the lives of the firstborns. Extreme hardness of heart ultimately requires extreme measures from God. Now Abijah, we're presuming, was also the heir to the throne. That's not said explicitly, but when, when Jeroboam was made king, the promise was that if he was faithful, he would have an abiding throne. And so now he's not been faithful, and we see God taking the life of his son. So we can fairly safely presume that this is probably his firstborn son, the heir to the throne. And so then Jeroboam here is not only concerned out of, uh, of a fatherly love, or at least you, you hope he is, at least that, but also for his throne and for his legacy. And you know, God is not acting at, at random here then. He, he's taking the heir because the heir is the future of his kingdom. He's fulfilling the promise and the threat that he made to Jeroboam at the very beginning when he put Jeroboam up. Now, we don't know the exact age of, of this child. The, the word that's used here usually indicates a very small child, like a toddler. So, so we, we assume somewhere around that age. And so Jeroboam sees that his son had become seriously sick and he decides to send his wife to go see Ahijah the prophet who he says was the man who told me that I would be king over this people. Well sadly this is the only time you ever find Jeroboam seeking out a prophet of the Lord of his own volition. It really reminds you of so many people in our own day who, who don't know the Lord, who don't go to church. Uh, and then when disaster strikes in their family, then suddenly they go back to that one priest or that one pastor that they used to know many years ago. That's exactly what we see here with Jeroboam. The word of this prophet Ahijah clearly never meant anything to, to Jeroboam his entire life long. He wasn't obeying the strict orders he had from Ahijah. And so now he goes to him hoping for a word from the God that he's never before cared to listen to. So he sends his wife to Ahijah the prophet and he has her go in disguise. And the text doesn't say why he had her go in disguise, but probably it was because he already knew exactly what the prophet would say if he knew who he was. He had been warned a long time ago that that if he was unfaithful, his throne would be exterminated. Well, he knew perfectly well that he was walking in disobedience to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And so his goal now is to try and get from the prophet what he wanted, a word from God, hopefully favorable, without getting to the issues that that God wanted to speak to him about. He knew already God didn't approve of his way of life, but he wasn't there to to talk about that. And so he tells his wife to to go in disguise and to bring along ten loaves, some cakes, and a jar of honey. This is a a very small and and humble gift, and, and it would have served as part of the disguise. His wife would have looked like some poor woman giving everything that she had, a few cakes and and a jar of honey. And so the idea is to manipulate the prophet of God into feeling sorry for this poor woman and giving a favorable word from God. And and you can just see what a low view he had of of prophets in in all of this. Well, the irony is is that Ahijah turns out to be blind anyways. The disguise was was redundant. He was now doubly blind, being blind and her coming in disguise, and yet still, of course, it didn't make any difference because this is a prophet of the Lord. And so verse 5, the Lord says to, to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for when it, when, when, it shall be when she comes that she will pretend to be another woman." And so when she comes, the very first thing he says is, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. Well, there's a, there's a second irony in this too. Also that Jeroboam thought that he was sending his wife to go see Ahijah the prophet. But as it turns out, the prophet says to, to her, No, I have been sent to you with very bad news the child's sickness and Jeroboam's secret plan of disguise and his wife's journey, all of these things were actually planned by God. In reality, Ahijah was being sent to him. And so Ahijah told Jeroboam's wife that he had been sent with bad news. He says, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel. And then in the next few verses, there's a very clear structure and a pattern. It says, because I did this for you, and I did this for you, and I did this for you, and now you have done this back to me, and this back to me, and you have done this back to me, therefore I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. There's that clear pattern, three eyes, three yous, three eyes again. And, and, and what the point of that pattern is, is that Jeroboam is not just sinning against God, he's sinning against God's grace, against all that God had done for him out of, out of grace. He had been given every grace, every blessing. In fact, he had been given some of the very same promises that David had been given. If you are faithful, I will give you an abiding, an everlasting throne. And yet, he wasn't faithful. And we see God uses some very harsh language with, with Jeroboam, the, the, the New King James, as well as any of the other modern translations. They, they sort of clean it up. But where it says in, in verse... Excuse me for a second. In verse 10, he says, "Where I, I will cut off every male in Israel. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, I will cut off all those that urinate against walls. It's a, it's a vulgar expression, and it sounds like the sort of expression that the poor boys would have used, a derogatory term of those, those palace boys who get to, to pee against walls instead of the rest of us who have to use bushes. 
And actually, if you look it up in the King James, you'll get an even more colorful translation, but I'll let you do that on your own. But it's an expression that refers to, to males who grow up in the palace with, with privilege, privileged boys who had everything that they needed. And then God adds through the prophet, I will burn up the house of Jeroboam the way one burns up refuse. So between the urine and and the refuse, the point that the prophet is making is fairly clear. Jeroboam's house stinks before God. And it's time to move that house to the septic tank where it belongs. Well, Ahijah continues, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat, and, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord of hosts has spoken. We have to understand in those times a, a proper burial was extremely important. They would sometimes even engage in, in very dangerous battles just to recover bodies to give them a proper burial. So this is the most dishonorable end imaginable for Jeroboam's line. And you see this kind of end more often in the book of Kings. It's a gruesome book sometimes, and, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why we don't read it as often as perhaps we should. But it, it's gruesome because it shows the ugliness of the sin and how sin stinks before God and the disastrous consequences also of our sins and not just for us but also for our families, for our communities even as you see in Kings so often for the nation So the prophet tells Jeroboam's wife then in verse 12, Arise, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave. Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord of hosts the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Now there's some comforting words there about the child himself, but the overall message is still a message of judgment. The child's death would be, so to speak, the sign and seal of greater judgments to come. The end of the beginning would be the beginning of the end for Israel. Maybe Jeroboam and his wife thought that the little boy had gotten a rough deal from God, but, but the prophet says here, no, in reality, the, the child is the only one who would be spared. He would be really spared from growing up and becoming another man like his father. One of the saddest things that I've ever seen in my life, a few years ago in Brazil, my, my infant son was, was playing with another boy in, in, in his grandma's house, and this boy came from a, a drug trafficking family, and the two boys were playing nicely along, but, but that, that other boy was, you could see, already starved of love. Dad had walked out, mom didn't care, grandma and grandpa didn't have time. And you look at it from a human perspective and you think that, that boy's going to grow up to be a man just like his dad because that's exactly the kind of boy his dad used to be when his dad walked out on him. Well, in this case, we see that little child is spared from becoming another man like his father. He's the only one to escape the judgment of God. And there's some, some theological questions here for us that, that are somewhat difficult to answer. Every indication here is that God saved 
this little child, even though he was the son of an unbeliever. Now I grant he was a covenant child. Jeroboam was still a covenant member, but he was an unfaithful covenant member, someone who had broken the covenant and and walked away from God. And yet we find God has mercy on this little child. Now, with questions like these, we should always be very careful to not make judgments on behalf of God. We would love to believe that this is how God always works with infant children of unbelievers and believers alike, and many Christians do believe that, but Scripture doesn't teach us that. The truth is, we don't know. God will save whom He will save. We are all conceived and born in sin. There's no human being, even an infant, that is truly innocent. And you see that even in the destruction of the Canaanites where even the infant children were, 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 were slaughtered. And so it's true certainly for us here in, in God's covenant, we do have the sure promises of God's grace for our children. But outside the covenant, there are no easy answers. God would have every right to condemn even every infant. He is God. We are all sinners. And the only way to God that Scripture shows us is through Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Scripture doesn't say how God will judge infants who never had the opportunity to to know Him. And we shouldn't make that judgment on, on God's behalf. We would love for Him to save every innocent infant but we have no right to declare that He will. We, we can't make that call for Him. We are not God. He is God. Our comfort, at least as far as that goes, then, is that at least we know God will always do the right thing. He is righteous. And so He will always do what is right. Uh, Something else I should say before we move on from this verse. This text is not teaching us at all that the death of a child is always punishment for sin. It's important to understand that. You think of the widow of Zarephath who lost her child as well. And that wasn't a punishment for her sin. In the New Testament also, you remember the time the disciples asked the Lord Jesus about a man born blind, whether it was his sin or his parents' sin that led him to be born that way. And the Lord said, neither. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We can't pretend to know God's purposes. More often than not, we won't have an answer for questions like that until eternity. But this text does teach us that God does have a purpose for the death of every child. And sometimes He takes a child because He has better plans for that child. Plans that we might not even be able to imagine. Psalm 116 verse 15 tells us, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And that's certainly true for the death of the unborn or newborn children of His saints as well. So for this child, in in the middle of all this judgment, there is a word of grace. Undeserved, unexpected grace for this child. 
Well, for Jeroboam and for Israel, sadly, this child's death is only the sign and seal of much greater judgments to come. The end of the beginning is the beginning of the end. Even 200 years in advance, the idolatry, the pattern of idolatry that Jeroboam had established there in the beginning would be the pattern that every king after him would carry on. And it would ultimately lead to the end of the kingdom of Israel. And so the prophet says, coming back to our text in verse 14, he says, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day, what even now? For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. That, that image of a root in, a reed in the water uh, it, it, it goes back to a practice in the day. If you were going to uproot a, a, uproot a reed that was in the water, you would first strike it hard so that the, the roots would be broken from the soil and then you could properly uproot it. And that's the warning that God is giving Jeroboam here by striking the, the heir to the throne. That is only the beginning of the uprooting that will soon follow. He will strike them in order to uproot them. He will begin by destabilizing the throne and then he will continue by sending invaders into the country. And when Israel was thoroughly destabilized, then he would uproot them and take them to a place far away. Well, this is the response that, that Ahijah gives to Jeroboam's wife. It was bad news indeed. And so he tells her as soon as her feet entered the city, the child would die and that that death would be the beginning of the end, the seal of the undoing of the entire nation. And so we, we read in verse 17, Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. Now, now there's something just unfathomable about that response from, from Jeroboam's wife. We, we can only begin to imagine the, the, the agony that would have been on her heart as she made that journey home, knowing that her presence would bring about the death of her child. And it leaves you wondering, why did she do it at all? You have to wonder why she still even went home. You want to cry out to her, don't you realize every time God speaks in judgment, he's leaving an opportunity for repentance. Isn't that always the case? You think of when God spoke in judgment against King David, how after his, his adultery with Bathsheba, and he tore his clothes and, and he wept because God had said he would take the life of that, that, that newborn child. And he, he fasted and he put sackcloth on his head and he wept before God for seven days. And I know that didn't ultimately save the life of that child, but David understood rightly that it's never too late to try God's grace. When God speaks in judgment, he's leaving opportunity for repentance. 
And isn't that always the case? You think of in first in Second Kings, excuse me, Second Kings twenty, God came to King Hezekiah in judgment against him, and Hezekiah wept bitterly before the Lord, and God added fifteen years to his life. In fact, you think about King Ahab. I, I preached a little on King Ahab last time we were here, and, and King Ahab was the most ungodly of the kings, at least up till his point. And even he repented for a time before the Lord and God withheld his judgment. When God speaks in judgment, it's never too late for repentance. And so you read Ahijah's judgment here against Jeroboam's wife and you can't help but think maybe, just maybe, Ahijah is actually giving her a way out. Why else would he word the judgment the way he did? As soon as your feet enter the city, the child shall die. What ought she have to done? What, excuse me, what ought she have done? Well, Scripture doesn't say what God might have done. But if, if you were in her place, should you not have said, well, then I will not go back to the city, and maybe, maybe God will spare the life of my child. Now you might say, well, what a radical course of action that would be. And you're right, it would be a radical course of action, a huge price to pay. She would never see her home, perhaps. She would never see her child again. But isn't the life of her child worth a repentance like that? Well, is your life worth a radical repentance like that? Is the life of your family worth that kind of radical repentance? Or do we sometimes say, just like Jeroboam's wife might have said, the way that God is giving me, the way out is too radical for me. I cannot take it. Repentance and confession of my sins is too much a thing to ask. I'm not willing to confess my sins to my children or my crimes to the police or my actions to the elders because those would all be too radical for me. I couldn't possibly go down that road of repentance because, well, that would completely turn my life on its head. But then, brothers and sisters, isn't that exactly the point? Isn't a radical repentance worth eternal salvation and not just for your life but perhaps also for the life of your family if they're following your hardness of heart how many people are in hell right now wishing that they had taken the way out that God had given them even though it seemed far too radical at the time when God calls us to repentance it's unconditional surrender that God calls us to, and there's no price that's too great to pay for that kind of, uh, of repentance. Nothing is too radical when the righteous and holy God is calling us to change our lives and to turn back to Him. So what a tragedy it is here that Jeroboam's wife doesn't even seem to give repentance a thought. She never asks God for mercy. She never tries His grace. And so as soon as her feet touched the threshold of her house, the child died. And maybe you noticed with me that God even gave her that extra grace right till the last moment. The prophet had said, when your feet enter the city, the child will die. But, but God even waited until her feet touched the threshold of her house. But she still walked away. Well, sadly, brothers and sisters, this is a chapter about walking away 
from repentance. Jeroboam and his wife had been given so many opportunities to repent, and they never once took God up on those opportunities. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. And yet the nature of sin, apart from God's grace, is to keep on walking away, to keep on defying His offers of mercy. And sadly, the, the consequences can be so devastating, not just for oneself, but even for many others in one's life. And not only in this life, but also in the life to come. Now you ask, what does this have to do with our Lord Jesus, with Jesus Christ? Well, because Jesus Christ paid the price to set guilty sinners free, because He bore the wrath of God, He took that judgment of God, and not just against one person, but against the entire human race, that means it is never too late for repentance. As long as you are still alive on the earth, it is still not too late for repentance. Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as they did. Perhaps your sins are like scarlet. Perhaps you've come to see that, that God is preparing your life for judgment because you feel his anger against you. Well, as long as it is still today, your sins can be washed whiter than snow and that judgment can still be avoided. Until the final day of judgment, whenever God speaks even to his own covenant people, his own children sometimes in judgment, he always leaves the opportunity for repentance. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God against the entire human race when he hung broken, suffocating on the cross, truly beyond the hope of avoiding God's judgment. He cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? God gave him no chance after that point so that he would still give all of us the opportunity to repent as long as it is still today. So then, is it still today? Then no repentance, no change, no confession of sins is ever too costly. Maybe it will mean, like it might have meant for Jeroboam's wife, that you might never see your family or your children again if you have committed crimes. Maybe it will mean, as it would have meant for Jeroboam, that you would have to humble yourself before your brothers in Judah and acknowledge your theological errors and return to worshiping God together with them, as Jeroboam would have had to do. Is that too great a price to pay for God's grace, for repentance? Well, in reality, the truth is that it's really too small a price to pay for God's grace. If you do take that road of repentance, you will discover that the real price for the grace that God has shown you was not paid by you. It was paid by Jesus Christ. But sadly, this chapter is a chapter about walking away from repentance. God's mercies extend even to the very last second. But after that, God's judgment is inevitable. He means His threats just as well as He means His promises. And so the urgent lesson for us this morning is humble yourselves before this God 
Repent if there is need of repenting before it is too late. Surrender your life to God unconditionally so that as Jeroboam's wife might have seen if she had done so, God might have mercy also on you. And if you do, you would only join the company of hundreds of other guilty, broken, repentant sinners in this congregation. Don't be ashamed to join their company. They're all guilty just as you are. There's only one righteous man alive, and he is the only hope for all sinners. Amen.